Hey everyone, this is Ray Hilbert, your host here at Bottom Line Faith. We hope that during this time of the global pandemic that you and yours are safe and sound. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be presenting to you some of the best of episodes that we have recorded over the last few years here at Bottom Line Faith. We're doing this in order to bring you some of the best high-profile and specialized speakers to help you navigate this crisis in your leadership in the marketplace. We'll be back with you soon with some new episodes of Bottom Line Faith, but for now, we hope and pray that this episode will be of tremendous value to help you live out your faith in the marketplace. And now, the show that bridges the gap between faith and business. Welcome to Bottom Line Faith. On today's show, Ray visits with New York Times bestselling author and speaker, John Acuff. God won't be handcuffed by my mistakes or unleashed by my success. He wasn't going to do something, and then he's unable to do it because of John Acuff. Like, thank goodness. What a small, weak God if the whole thing is on my ability. Because I'm going to mess up. He's going to do his thing. The love is he invites us in it to do it with him. That's the joy. Hey gang, Ray Hilbert here, your host at Bottom Line Faith. And I'm real excited for this edition of our program because it features New York Times best-selling author John Acuff. John's going to be one of our keynote speakers at the Truth at Work conference on Friday, November 8th, 2019. This is our annual conference at Truth at Work featuring an amazing lineup of top-notch Christian thought leaders and communicators. It's going to be an amazing event. There's a link in our show notes that can take you directly to the event website, truthatwork.org forward slash conference. Again, that website is truthatwork.org forward slash conference. So let's join in on the conversation with John Acuff. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ray Hilbert. I am your host here at Bottom Line Faith, and we'd love to welcome you back to another edition of the program where we talk about eternal business and real life, that intersection of faith, business, and leadership. And we travel the country, sometimes in a live face-to-face conversation, and then times like today when we're over the phone, we talk with some of America's leading Christ followers who are experts in entrepreneurialism, in leadership, and living out their faith in the marketplace. And boy, oh boy, folks, grab a pen Grab some paper, buckle up. We are in for a treat today. Our guest today is New York Times best-selling author John Acuff, who lives in the Nashville area, one of the leading influencers in social media today. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. Author of New York Times best-selling book Finish. Give yourself the gift of done. And we could go on and on about John's background and resume, but let's get into the conversation. John, welcome to Bottom Line Faith. Yeah, thanks for having me today, Ray. Well, John, you're certainly no stranger to these kinds of conversations. You host your own program with hundreds of thousands of followers and listeners and so on and so forth. What was it that kind of got you into this field of leadership? How did you get going in this, and how did your faith play a role in all that? Just help our audience to understand your background. Sure, a little bit of my background. I was in corporate marketing, so I had the opportunity to work in the marketing departments of big brands like Bose and Staples and the Home Depot, and so I was working in these departments, really enjoyed the work, felt challenged creatively, and 
along about 10, 12 years ago, I started a blog and it was a blog called Stuff Christians Like. And the goal was to have a fun conversation about the funny sides of faith. I'm a pastor's kid. So I grew up in the church. I certainly can speak church pretty well. So I would write about silly things like wishing you had a shirt that said, I direct deposit my tithe that you could wear to church on Sunday. Mm. Because when you tithe online, nobody in church knows you're still giving. And when you hot potato that offering bucket by, it'd be just helpful if you could go, hey, 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 I still love Jesus. <laughs> I just give online. Here's my T-shirt. So I started writing about that. And as, as God is wont to do, it just ended up having a life of its own. We had millions and millions of readers, and I got to write a book out of that experience with Zondervan called Stuff Christians Like. And then from there, got to work with a guy named Dave Ramsey, who's you know got a massive radio audience. And he basically said, hey, let me show you how to really expand platform, really expand influence, really serve people. Did that for a few years, and then I was ready to try it on my own. So about six years ago, I started my own company. And so now I spend most of my weeks either going to speak at companies or writing books that help companies and individuals. And so that's kind of the, the quick version. And that spans from Birmingham, Alabama, to Boston, to Atlanta. And now we've landed in Nashville for the last nine years. And we just love it. Uh, that's fantastic. So growing up as a pastor's kid, did you early on maybe see yourself following in, in dad's footsteps, becoming a, a vocational pastor, or did you always have the, the desire to you know be in business, to be in corporate setting, leadership? What, what was that like? Well, I, I think the pastor's kid has that itch to some degree. I think it's just natural. I mean, there's so many great examples of where you know, LeBron James' son is going to play basketball, because guess what? He grew up around basketball. Um, and so there was definitely some of that, but I think more than that, I really fell in love with the idea that an idea could help change somebody's life, the power of communication. And from third grade, having a, a teacher tell me, you know, you're good at writing poetry on up to college where I realized, wow, with marketing, you can really help somebody change some habit they're working on or change their perception of something. So I think that more than anything, what I fell in love with watching my dad do what he does, and I certainly would say anytime somebody gives me a compliment about public speaking that I'm standing on his shoulders because I got mm. I learned how to communicate from him. He started a Southern Baptist church in Massachusetts in the 80s, which was unheard of. And so <laughs> wow. watching him use humor and insight to an audience that there was no cultural Christianity, really. So that really shaped how I communicate. So I would say, though, that what I, from my early age, thought was, wow, when you shape an idea the right way, you can really do something pretty interesting, pretty special. I wonder if I can do that someday. And now at the time, social media didn't even exist. You know, I always tell college students, don't worry, you know, like we put this pressure on 18-year-olds that they have to know the next 30 years of their life and pick a major. But I couldn't have majored in what I do right now because it literally didn't exist. I couldn't have picked social media as an 18-year-old in college because it didn't exist. And so it's been a fun ride. But I would say the idea and my passion for ideas is what started early. Well, I find all that so incredibly interesting. You're, you really created not only a brand, but to some degrees, you were cutting edge on an industry. So if I'm listening to this conversation and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, how does a guy like John go out and live his faith? Because, you know, I'm, I'm looking at some of the companies that you that you work with and, and some of the brands that you help build. They're very prominent, successful businesses, global corporations, but certainly not faith-based, overtly. 
How do you, you know, go about integrating your faith and your background in your communication in a way that doesn't alienate those audiences? Well, I mean, I, I feel like that's the that's the spot God put me in in a really special way. During my 15 years working for big companies, I wouldn't have known what was to come. But now, you know, I can go speak at big, massive companies that aren't faith-based because I've got background in that. And I get invited to places a pastor will never get invited to. Yeah. And I don't, I don't take that lightly. I think what really helped me was uh, Matthew Chandler, a um, friend of mine in Texas, a pastor. I was talking to him about it because I think as Christians, we often have this guilt of we have to give the full gospel to every person we meet the very first second. And, and you know, where, where, what, did, what did Jesus say to Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. You know, I want to go to your house and have dinner. Like, that's what he, he didn't say. Before you leave the tree, I want to Roman road you and tell you the whole gospel. So Matthew, mm-hmm. Matt Chandler said to me, hey, bloom where you're planted. You know, you're there for an hour. Like, share that hour. Be deliberate about it. But here's what it looks like for you to be present to that. The books I've written are business books. And it's kind of like John Townsend, you know, a lot of his books, you'd go, wow, there's something different. There's something special. And he'd go, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about a biblical truth. That's what I try to aim for with mine, too. And so I recognize that there's different opportunities and different conversations that come along, and I try to be patient to those. I like to tell people, you often get to be one verse in somebody's song. Mm. And I think as Christians, we feel the pressure to be the whole song. Say I'm talking to a room full of youth pastors. I mean, you talk about a pressure job. You might speak to 200 kids, and one of them is going to tell you, hey, that really mattered to me. But the rest of them, you won't get to see that when they're 35 and they have their own kid and they came back to church and that you were a seed that was planted years ago and the work you did really mattered. You just got to be one verse and you have to trust that you have a big God that's going to resolve the song. And so that's how I look at it. Um, yeah. And I feel very fortunate that I get to go talk with these companies. I love that I get to do that. But it's the same, I'd say it's the same way that if, if somebody said to me, okay, you're, a, you're an ophthalmologist and you're doing cataract surgery, how did you share the gospel? I'd say, I was an amazing ophthalmologist today. And when the, the chance to have a conversation came up, I was present in that conversation. I wouldn't say, well, as soon as I made the first incision, I said, hey, have you been baptized? Because that's not, they want me to be an amazing ophthalmologist. Yeah. And so I think that's part of the, the fun for my job is going, okay, God, you put me where you want me to go and show me how to do that. That is really great. And so Let's tie this in then to the audience we have here at Bottom Line Faith. Many of our listeners are entrepreneurs, they're CEOs, they're leading companies and so forth. Sharing the principles that you just did, what words of encouragement could you have to someone who's listening here and saying, okay, so how do I do this? How do I not beat people over the head with the Bible, but yet live out my faith in a loving, winsome way? Any words or thoughts there? Well, I think part of it is you be patient. Hmm. You, You be patient. Let it go at God's time, not your own. I mean, I think all too often when we try to grab hold of his calendar or we try to grab hold of his clock, we end up forcing stuff. And we go, it's so weird. That person I'd never met didn't want to have a soul conversation with me. Well, yeah, you'd never met him. You barely knew their last name. Like, you didn't have any ground of relationship with them. You, you know, when you force that on somebody, they feel transactional. Like, they feel yeah. like you were trying to check a box that, okay— I shared with them today. It had nothing to do with them. You might as well show up with a stock message at a speech mm-hmm. and go, hey, I don't care who's in the crowd. You're all getting the same message. That, that disconnects you from people. So I think a big part of it is be patient. It takes time. And, and when you're prompted, answer the prompts, but don't, don't force the prompts. What I've found is that 
the best things that have happened to me, I've received, I didn't force. And so when I've got open hands and I'm able to say, okay, God, I'm trusting you with this, wonderful, beautiful things happen. When I clench my fist and think, I got to control my business, I got to control my life, I have to control every inch of it, boy, do I get real tense and just squeeze all the joy right out of it. That's that's such an encouragement. And, and frankly, doesn't it help take some of the pressure off, at least the self-implied pressure, like, I've got to do this? Oh, well, here's a, here's a case in point. So... Every time like somebody speaks and says, I'm nervous about speaking, I'll tell them, there's a couple points I'll give them. But one of them is they're going to hear what they need to hear. That's how speaking works. I've had people come up to me at the end of an event and go, hey, that thing you said was really meaningful. I loved it. I'll say, which thing? And then they'll say something I didn't even say. Hmm. And it was they heard what they needed to hear. We've all done that. Where we, you know, When you're listening to a speech or reading a book or doing anything, you're putting it together with your own thoughts, your own experiences. I mean, that's one of the things I teach in marketing is that the, the best stories leave room for me to tell my own. That's why a Porsche ad is a simple photo, lack of white space, a single headline, two paragraphs. They don't it because they want you to tell the story using your vocabulary, your experiences. And so it does take the pressure off because a lot of times the idea that I have to get this thing perfect or, or this won't happen, you go, well, you don't. You don't have to do that. You have to be present. I always tell pastors this. God won't be handcuffed by my mistakes or unleashed by my successes. Hmm. Like he's not, he wasn't going to do something and then he's unable to do it because of John Acuff. Like, <laughs> thank goodness. What a small, weak God if the whole thing hinges on my ability. Because I'm going to mess up. He's going to do his thing. The love is he invites us in it to do it with him. That's the joy. He goes, hey, do you want to be part of this story? And then you get to be part of it. That's really fun. That's so powerful. I'm, again, taking the pressure off. So you have had amazing success. And let's just call it what it is. And I'm looking in the last eight years, releasing five books. And let me, you mentioned the first one, Stuff Christians Like, which came out in 2010. The next book called Quitter, Close the Gap Between Your Day Job and Your Dream Job. Roughly two years later, Start, Punch Fear in the Face, Escape Average and Do Work That Matters. Two years later, Do Over, Make Today the First Day of Your New Career. And then really run away, hit, finish, give yourself the gift of done. I would love for you to unpack for our audience, how do you get inspired? How do you go about such prolific writing and communication? I mean, this this is an extra... I mean, I've co-authored a couple of books myself, and this is no easy undertaking. What is that process like for you? Where do you get your inspiration? How do you find the time? How do you develop your concepts? I mean, just unpack that for us. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'd say right out of the gate, I find books challenging. Sometimes when you when you hear about it in a list, it feels like I'm running through a field with a ribbon, and it's always just super easy. So like any anybody who sits down to write will tell you, boy, that's that's challenging. So I think the way I look at it is I think about three circles. So imagine there's three circles, and one says passion. And so I find a passion in my own life. What's something that I'm personally interested in? And I collect a bunch of questions. I'll collect a bunch of thoughts. I'm writing them down in a notebook. I, you know, I'm very deliberate about my ideas and, and kind of recording them. So I'm, I'm looking for questions. What's something in my own life that I'm curious about? Passion. The second thing I look for is a need. Is there a need? Do people actually need this idea? And the third thing I look for is I look in the market. I go, is it overserved or underserved? So let's take finish because that's the most recent book. So I realized, okay, I'd like to be better at finishing things. 
there's some goals, you know, that are easy for me to look at that I go, wow, I didn't finish that. Why is that? I'm really good at starting. So I said, okay, well, I have a passion. Like, why, how do you finish? So then I said, okay, is there a need? This is kind of imagine a Venn diagram. These are all overlapping. And people came up to me and said, hey, I liked your book, Start. It was helpful, but I've never had a problem starting. I can start 50 things tomorrow. Every entrepreneur listening to this right now has 50 URLs they've registered because they thought someday I'm going to do something with that idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's really easy to start. And people said, hey, can you teach me how to finish? And so then I looked in the marketplace. And so I went to Amazon, for instance, and I typed in finish. And the first thing that came up, the only thing that came up was finish dishwasher detergent. And I thought, okay, well, maybe there's something there. And so you have to have all three. Say you have a passion, something you're really excited about. It's not being served in the market. You, you think that, wow, it's missing in the market, but people don't need it. That's essentially a hobby. Like I like that you want to do a store for albino ferret owners because you don't think anybody's serving that market, but <laughs> nobody actually needs that. That's a hobby. Say you find yeah. a really big need, a really big market, but you have no personal heart for it. That's a day job. You might make money at it, but if you're not personally connected to it, eventually it's going to feel like a day job and you're not going to feel great about it. I mean, say you find a need. People need this thing. Say you find a passion. You love it, but the market is oversaturated. That's a cake pop. If you told me today, John, I'm going to open a cake pop store, I'd say you're 10 years too late. Like by the time it's in Starbucks, we already have that. Mm. That market's saturated. So for me, that's about books. I think, okay, here's the three pieces. And so right now I'm in the middle of writing a book on chapter four today. And the topic is overthinking. And I think it's going to be my most important book in part because me and a PhD asked 10,000 people in this study, do you struggle with overthinking? And 99.5% of people said yes. So as an author, when you identify a need that large, you write that book. And the crazy thing is they all think they're the only one that does it. And I think overthinking costs companies millions of dollars every year in lost decisions, lost actions, lost time, lost creativity. So I've got the three circles, and that's the next thing I'm writing. But that's how I pick an idea to work on. Well, to me, it seems like that's extraordinarily applicable to any business looking to determine, is this a product or a service that we're going to offer or take to market? Those questions seem very practical, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. And that's what I, you know, when I get the chance to talk to entrepreneurs, I'll often, often teach, teach those circles. And, and, you know, part of it is I'd rather meet a need than invent a need. Yeah. And so if I can identify that, you know, I'd, already, I'd rather have fans waiting for the thing they told me they needed than have to do the legwork, which is often very expensive and time-consuming, of creating a need where there isn't one. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's a couple of interesting tidbits that I would love to explore with you, just as you've actually been a stand-up comedian. You've sold out comedy clubs. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And and I don't know, you give us an example of one of your favorite jokes. Yeah, well, I mean, I've always loved humor. That's who I study comedians more than business speakers, because I think great comedians are great social commentators. And my father used to take me to comedy clubs to see comedians. So it's part of part of something I've always enjoyed. And so finally I said, okay, I'm going to try it. I'm going to do two nights in Nashville at our biggest comedy club and see if I can actually do it. And so I sold it out, which with the size of my platform, like that wasn't the challenging part. The challenging part was writing a 60 minute comedy set. That was incredibly oh difficult. 
and if anything gave me great, I mean, even greater respect for comedians who I already respected. And so, yeah, last fall I did that. I love doing it. I mean, one of my favorite jokes, um, a bumper sticker that says my dog is smarter than your honor student. I always want to say, where did you go to school? Um, how bad was your honors program? Like I've never heard somebody say our honor students are really great at calculus, but if there's a loud storm, we have to put thunder shirts on them. Um, or you know, if Kyle gets too excited about a, an AP history problem, he urinates everywhere. Like that's just a crazy thing to think like, no, it's not your dog. Like eats a dead chipmunk if he finds one. Cause that's amazing to him. Like your dog isn't smarter than an honor student. That's just not even a little bit true. And so I had a lot of fun kind of exploring that idea because I just felt like it's such a ridiculous thing. So, John, in this whole vein of humor and comedy, I read something about you online that I, it just piqued my curiosity. It said that after May 1st, 2019, you will forever be known as, I quote, the turtle urine guy. What's up with that? <laughs> Yeah, that, that's such a funny thing to me. So I spoke at an event, 8,000 people in the Gwinnett Arena uh, for an organization called Resafe. And I've done this event five or six years in a row. So I know the audience. The audience knows me. Really, really special event for me. And um, this last year, I did a – the theme was personal. And so I did a countdown of animals from most personal to least personal because I thought that who doesn't like bringing animals on stage? And so we started with a puppy, like, oh, so cute. And then I worked the way down to the least personal animal, which is a cat. <laughs> Amen. And in between were animals like snake, turtle, fish. And so we had a desert tortoise. And we just, we got these animals from some place that just rents animals. Like, and they just show up with bags of animals. It was very bizarre. So the animals, like, they're behaving, everything's going well. And then the desert tortoise. I held it up in front of 8,000 people and it started urinating right in the middle of my speech. And it, it happened right after I'd said owning a turtle is like owning a rock who could die. And it was like, it was perfectly timed as if it was insulted by the joke. And so for me, I, I loved it because I knew we were about to ride this comedy wave. Like it was, it was comedic manna. What a gift. And so I started to joke about it and then it kept going again and again and again. And it was a three-day event. That's the thing everybody asked me about. And so I guarantee when I speak at that event next May, somebody's going to give me a stuffed animal turtle because yeah. it was so, again, I didn't do anything. I just received the gift of that turtle. But boy, was that hilarious. And it was very memorable. And it's hilarious that that's on my Wikipedia page. Of course <laughs> it is. That's the internet. Did it make its way to YouTube? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was probably, it's probably going to be like my third most popular post on Instagram this year. I mean, it's, yeah, that thing has a life of its own. As well, it should. Like, it's pretty, it couldn't have been, it couldn't have been funnier. So that, that is, it's a great question to ask because you know there's a story behind a sentence like that. And that is the story. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love it. And, and so why is humor such an important part of effective communication? Well, I, I mean, Chris Rock, the comedian, says there's certain things people won't listen to unless they're laughing at the same time. Mm. And I've always believed that to be true. So I think that humor is a great vehicle for truth. It puts a handle on ideas. That's kind of one of the things I like to say that is my job is I'm a handle maker. We have enough ideas. We don't have enough handles on them to pick them up and take them back to our lives. I think humor does that, where it allows you 
to put a handle on an idea that otherwise somebody might not have listened to, might not have picked up. And we remember it. Humor's sticky. Humor's sticky. You know, I've I've never given a speech and had somebody at the end say, laugh too much, you know? Yeah. Because, you know, when I do a corporate speech, they're not expecting humor. That's what's really fun, is that I get to make it a lot of fun. And part of that is, goes back to sitting in boring corporate speeches myself growing up and thinking, <laughs> oh, man, this topic doesn't have to be boring. Like, there's ways that you can make this really fun. Like, even if it's a serious topic, there's a way we can have fun with it. And so that's what I try to do when I, get, when I have the chance to serve an audience. That's a biblical principle, right? I mean, laughter is a medicine to the soul, as it tells us in Proverbs. And you address that in your book, Finish. Could you talk just for a moment? What is the role of humor in getting things done? And- yeah, what was interesting, we studied that. I commissioned a research study with a PhD named Mike Peasley. They nearly 900 people for six months as they worked on their goals. And one of the things we tested was making the goal fun. Not having fun, like going to the beach is having fun. Making it fun is finding deliberate ways to add fun to things that aren't inherently fun. Mm. So looking at a project and going, this part of the project is challenging to me. How do I add a little more joy? How do I do that? And what we found is that when people do that, they were 31% more satisfied with the goal and they are 46% higher performing. And so it had a, a very important impact to their ability to do it. And when you think about it, it just makes sense. Of course, you're going to do something you find enjoyable more often. But we as Americans often think a goal has to be difficult or miserable to count. So when people tell me, I'm going to lose weight, and I'll go, great, what are you going to do? And they'll say, I'm going to run. And I'll go, okay, do you like running? They go, no, I hate it. That's how I know it's good for me. Mm-hmm. And you go, well, you're not, you're not going to stick with it. You hate the thing. But the problem is they don't think dancing counts, or they don't think a walk around their neighborhood with their spouse counts. They think it has to be miserable for me to get something out of it, where when you add fun to it, you dramatically increase your odds of actually doing it, which again, just makes sense when you think about it. Yeah, very good. Very good. John, in just the remaining few moments, I'd like to just get a couple pieces of advice or encouragement from you. As, As you look back over the course of your life and career, what would you say is the biggest mistake you can recall making, and what did God teach you in the midst of that? Hmm. Biggest mistake. I wouldn't say, I mean, it's hard to think think of a single one. I would say more a general fog of arrogance and immaturity hmm. would be my biggest kind of mistake. And I think that manifested with not being willing to listen to wise counsel, um, thinking I didn't need wise counsel, being kind of impulsive with decisions, thinking, you know, wise counsel was in the way of the decision versus trying to help me have guardrails for the decision. So I would say that's kind of the the fog of arrogance and immaturity, I would say, has been my my biggest mistake. And And what God taught me, I mean, I think what he taught me there is that I need to learn how to ask for help. Yeah. A friend said to me that people don't want advice, they want confirmation. Hmm. And that's really stuck with me. And so trying to allow people into my life that can give me advice, not just confirm what I always, what I already want to believe. And so that, that's been a good lesson for me. And that one, I, cer- I certainly don't feel done with that lesson, yeah. but it's one that I, I think it's, has stuck with me. Okay. And this may take us down a very similar pathway here, but if you were to go back and give advice to the 20-year-old John Acuff, what would you say to that young man? I mean, I'd say marry Jenny Acuff as fast <laughs> as you can, or actually Jenny Calvert. I didn't marry my cousin. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, so I'd say marry Jenny Calvert as fast as you can. 
And I'd say, you know, yeah, definitely. I'd say get a mentor. I don't know if the 20 year old me would have, would have gone for that. Yeah. But I think to the, from a business perspective, something hyper practical, I'd say care about your email list, not just social media. Cause I think it's really easy to get stuck on the shininess of social media and forget that like the brick by brick building of an email list where you get to serve an audience is really important too. It's not sexy. Like the retweets feel better, but what's going to serve you in the long run is being able to email people and communicate with them. So I would have, you know, from a tactical, practical way, I would have said, Hey, be smart about this specifically. Oh, that's fantastic. So just, just a word of advice or encouragement for our audience. Let's say that someone's listening and maybe they're in a, they're a Christ follower, they're in business, they're a marketplace leader, they're struggling, they're discouraged, they're in a dark place or whatever. What word of encouragement or advice would you be open to sharing that might just help them discover who and what God's created them to be to give them that boost of encouragement? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd, from a very specific, I'd say read Zephaniah 317. I think it's a really encouraging verse. It's just jam-packed with hope. So I think that's always a good go-to for me. Um, the second thing I'd say is you're not supposed to be carrying it alone. Like chances are you're trying to carry too much by yourself. Yeah. So the the challenging thing is when you get stuck, you tend to isolate, which is the last thing you need to be doing. You're act, you know, it's actually helpful if you can reach out to people, um, which isn't easy. Sometimes we, you know, I don't like when people give advice like tell ten people this, this, and this. You're like, I don't. I might not even know 10 safe people, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. like, let's start with one, tell one friend, this is what I'm going through. Or like one friend, like, Hey, this is, this is something that I'm struggling with, or this is something I feel doubt with. I think it's really valuable when you're in that situation to get, to get a second opinion. And then the third thing I'd say is, is write some of it down. I'm not saying you need to journal in some amazing way, like people on Instagram who are like illustrating their whole Bible with 3D images of doves popping mm-hmm. off the page. Mm-hmm. I just mean, write down a couple things. Here's how I'm feeling and write it down. Cause there's a power to seeing what you're actually thinking on paper. And I think it's helpful. And I think it gives you a, a starting point. And so, yeah, those would be the three things that I encourage somebody to do. Fantastic. John, what is the best way for anyone listening to this conversation to learn more, to connect with you, to become a follower? What, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Well, my, my website is acuff, A-C-U-F-F dot me dot M-E. Instagram, I'm John Acuff, J-O-N-A-C-U-F-F. Finish is my most recent book and probably the easiest avenue into the things I like to write about. And then Twitter, John Acuff. And so, yeah, I'm, usually if you, can, if you can Google John Acuff, you'll be able to find me. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Well, John, those who have listened to our program regularly know that the last question I always ask is what I call my 423 question. It's based out of Proverbs 423, where Solomon writes these words. He says, above all else, guard your heart, for it determines the course of your life. So I always ask as the last question, my guest, if if you could just imagine yourself at the end of your life on earth, and you're getting ready to enter into eternity, and you have a chance to gather your family, your friends, your loved ones, those who are most precious to you, and you have a chance to pass along one single piece of advice. John, would you fill in the blank for us? What would be that advice above all else? Um, I think I'd say delight yourself in the Lord. Mm-hmm. I think I'd say delight, delight yourself in the Lord. And that's Proverbs, you know, 37.4, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. 
I think I, I think that's what I'd that's what I would say. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Well, John, thank you for being our guest here at Bottom Line Faith. I know you're a lot going on and you're getting ready to go out on a tour even this week, but I just can't thank you enough for offering your words of encouragement and your time here. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Well, folks, there you have it, another incredible episode here at Bottom Line Faith and, you know, just an amazing conversation with John Acuff. And if you want to check out and learn more about John, again, his website was Acuff, and that's A-C-U-F-F, as in Frank, dot M-E. And that's also referenced in the show notes, so you can click and get a direct connection there. John's just another great example of what we're trying to do here at Bottom Line Faith, and that's bring you top thought leaders, bring you amazing entrepreneurs and marketplace influencers who are followers and lovers of Jesus and who are living out their faith every day in the marketplace. And that's our encouragement to you. That's our gift to you here at Bottom Line Faith, is that while you're running your business, as you're leading your company, that you can take these principles and these stories and use them as inspiration and encouragement for you to live out your faith as well. Thanks for being with us today. We'd love it if you would be so gracious to go online and offer a positive review of our conversation today. That's one of the best things you can do to help us get the word out. That helps us in the search engine placements and all those things. So until next time, I am your host here at Bottom Line Faith, Ray Hilbert, encouraging you to live out your faith every day in the marketplace. God bless, and we'll see you next time. Bottom Line Faith is brought to you by Truth at Work. If you'd like to hear about new episodes or listen to past episodes, visit us online at bottomlinefaith.org. You can also subscribe to the show through Google Play and iTunes. 